so it's it's just a, it's just everything's evolving so crazy, and I and I do have this kind of new maybe pet hope that all of this worry will be for naught, and eventually, like in the the, the like the converse of the Terminator, we're just gonna have benevolent technology, just like hey, we figured this shit out for you guys. Okay, so welcome back to I'm the Villain, guys. Today, we are sitting down with our new friend, Spencer, to talk about environmentalism. I'm excited personally because this is always a conversation that's felt super nebulous to me. I'm excited for like Spencer to sort of reframe this a little bit. Spencer, do you want to talk a little bit generally about yourself and what you do and what brought you here? Thanks so much for having me, guys. I'm really, really excited to be here. My name is Spencer Schecht. I run Green Drinks DC, which is a social organization that brings folks together in the nation's capital for informal gatherings monthly. Uh, and I'm also a concerned citizen. I'm a bass player, uh, brother, son, and uncle. Why don't you just tell us a little bit about Green Drinks and how you started it, what the premise of it is, you know? Yeah. So Green Drinks DC goes back to 2013. Well, the Green Drinks story for me goes back that far. Green Drinks has been around for a long time, and it's sort of this idea, this concept that's out there, and anyone could take a Green Drinks name and found their own Green Drinks organization across the country, across the world. So there's Green Drinks New York, there's Green Drinks Louisville, and they're all autonomous and independent. Green Drinks DC has been active, I think, since 2007. But in 2013, I went to this climate training seminar. Al Gore founded an organization after The Inconvenient Truth called the Climate Reality Leadership Corps to train people to become climate presenters and communicators. So I went to this thing in 2013 in Chicago, and I happened to meet a tall gentleman with long hair who's wearing a tie-dye bandana, and his <laughs> name was Tim. And it turns out Tim also lived in D.C., so when we got back from this, this seminar that was training people on how to be climate leaders, we decided that we were going to team up and we were going to give one of these presentations. So we became friends, and we eventually moved in together, and we wanted to keep that momentum going. We said, what, what's like an extracurricular activity that we can do outside of our jobs that helps catalyze positive environmental action? And since D.C. is this network-centric, happy hour-centric location... Yeah. Right, yeah. like there's no other city quite like it. <laughs> the happy yeah. hour culture is uh, it's thick, it's in the air. Yeah, It's a happy hour for everything out there. Mm -hmm. So we just said, we're gonna do our own environmental or climate or energy happy hour. So you went to school and... So I came to DC in 2013 to start graduate school at American nice. University. I took a really cool uh, graduate program through American University, uh -huh. it's called uh, global Environmental Policy, Natural Resources, and Sustainable Development. Right. And I did a year in Costa Rica. Nice. At the University for Peace. Is that where your, is that where your passion for like environmentalism or like your alarmness mm. about climate change started or was it before that? It was a little bit before that. And it was, I was really in this position where I was floundering after undergrad and I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do. And I really owe a debt of gratitude to my parents who really pushed me in this, in this period because I'd moved back in and they gave me like two years and then eventually they were like, 
This is not working out, man. Like, don't be, don't be a loser. Don't live at They're your parents' like, house. There's no like, way, bro. You've got you're you're smart enough. Go out there and uh, figure it out. And so that actually prompted me to think long and hard about like, what do I really care about? What do I want to do? Right. And once I was kind of forced with that question to to wrestle with it, and I'm grateful that I attacked it from like a value perspective because it w- really started with, what do I care about? Deep down, uh-huh. that just comes out of me that like reflexively versus what's going to make me money or what's going to make me look cool. But um, what I realized in almost in an instant, which is really cool, was climate change. That uh-huh. I really, really cared about climate change. Interesting. And it was an aha moment because it was something that had been kind of like, f- there had been signs of it all throughout my life. That, that just like you care that, about That like I change. care about the environment. That yeah. I'm kind of like an environmental, ing- like environmentally minded yeah. person. But it just never occurred to me because I was like such a... I was like such a goon growing up and I wanted to play video games and I didn't want to like go outside. And I remember just like hiking around at summer camp and thinking, oh, fuck this. I don't like this at all. And I love that now. But like when I was growing up, it was I didn't did not want to be outside and did not fall in love with nature and want to watch the sunset and all that. Although I do very much now. Right. So it was this moment where I realized, wow, I really care about this thing. I want to do something about it. I want to push my life in that direction. And that was really cool because Uh there was this very much a finality to it and it seemed very certain but then I down the road I learned that there's actually many different ways to get involved just yeah. because you've picked something that sounds super specific there's many more questions and distinctions to, to be made about what you want to do in that field that's super interesting because I feel like there are lots of people for whom it's like not one of those concrete things, right? It's one of those things that you could super easily just like have it be over there mm-hmm. and you know what's going on, but it's yeah. over there, you know? And so like, I'm wondering like really, because for me it also like, I know it's happening, but it does not feel like it has any kind of real immediacy. Right. right? Climate change. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So climate change, uh, the way it was described once in, in a paper I read or some passage was that it's become the axle upon which all other environmental movements and concerns have been hinged upon. And if you go back, if you remember, these, there's been a conversation around environmental problems for a long time. Uh, pollution back in the early or in the mid-1900s, right? 20th century, London was notorious that it was awful air quality where Beijing is today. Uh, and then point, point source pollution, talking about specific rivers. It's, it's bad to pollute this river. It's bad to have the Exxon Valdez spill. And the narrative has really shifted, which is interesting, into a more global narrative around these kind of responsibilities and things that are a little bit more abstract, like emissions from a country, talking about all the cars, all the industry, all the electricity, all of the industry released into the, the commons of the atmosphere. And it's, it's a less of a question of individual things. And so it's this bigger, broader questions that involves business and government and personal decisions. Right. And so that's why it's a little bit more abstract. It's a little bit more nebulous, right? Because it's, it's over there. It's not something you can grab onto because if it's just like, hey, save the, the Potomac. The, yeah. You can, you, like, we've got a clear set of actions that are possible to do that. When it comes to save the earth from baking, you know, this is, is, it's a huge thing. And and to that point, it just when things are not digestible like that, it's way easier to just throw up your hands and go, "What can I do about it?" Right. So, do you think that like that shift in narrative to a more global viewpoint 
is bad for the movement almost. Well, think global, act local it, to, to whip out one of those right. back pocket phrases. But that's true. And there's a movement in environmentalism now. And things have, everything has changed in a Trump era. Right. Right. And so I think that a lot of progressive folks became very complacent from 2008 through 2016. Yeah. Like and yeah, right. It was like history done. We figured this like out. We did it. Right. Yeah. You know, ozone and, holes fixed. And I like there was a sense of growing up in the 90s for me when I was a kid that it's just like we, fig we figured all the bad shit out. And now it's just kind of like optimizing and fine tuning. And, you know, to, you know, to Steven Pinker's kind of thesis, he's a thinker on this. It's like things are getting better. Uh, and objectively, all metrics are showing that things are getting better. Um, but there are still nefarious problems around institutions. And now that there are so many more people, nearly twice as many people as there were, were 30 years ago, things are more amplified. Things are more urgent. We live in a completely interconnected universe. The economy, the trade, like trade, economy, immigration, healthcare, technology, everything's all a narrative that involves so many different variables now. And it's mm -hmm. all mixed in there together. It's important to think globally, but a lot of the action is coming out of corporations. It's coming out of states. So, you know, Trump famously said that he was going to pull out of the Paris Accord. Right. Now, the Paris Accord, for people that don't know what that is, is the crown piece of over 20 years worth of global negotiations through a UN platform to figure out climate change and what people are going to do. And there's a lot of issues around it because there were all these ideas of, hey, you, like the U.S., you did a lot of this. How about you pay us all? And that wasn't going to work. And, we're in a, and the U.S. was in a position to say, yeah, we're not going to agree to that. And so it was this delicate dance over decades. And it took a long time, but essentially it was this agreement. And you could say it was, to be very simple, a gentleman's agreement. <laughs> the world and countries were going to come together, and Bulgaria said, I'm going to do this. And Norway said, I'm going to do this. The U.S. said, I'm going to do this. And we'd all added it up and tallied it up and said, okay, not a bad start. And then there were some mechanisms around, oh, every three years we're going to revisit and your goals can only go up. They can't go down. And so how are you going to readjust right. for that? So it took a long time to figure this all out over, you know, nearly 200 countries. So it was a big deal. And Trump just, of course, just pulls right out of it. <laughs> and actually the counter reaction to that was very positive because then a lot of states municipalities even, and corporations said, we're going to honor that agreement and we're going to do our part. And you, what you'll see across every industry right now are um, new commitments with a climate focus around emissions, reducing greenhouse gas emissions in their supply chain, in their distribution chain. Big companies, Microsoft, um, Costco, Apple, in an age where so many people are denouncing capitalism, there's, there's an urge to maybe say corporations are have been the problem here. We need to, like, they, they need to do something about this or, you know, we need to have revolution. But corporations themselves are stepping up and recognizing, I think at a marketing level, mm. that it's important to do something about it. And that it's, that more and more decisions are being made around brands that have that green association with it. Well, how much do you actually buy it though, as opposed to just they're buying into this vision in order to make a bunch of money, but not actually making a difference themselves yeah. versus, right? Like how much of do you think it is, is marketing? I, I, I would guess it varies corporation by corporation, but you have to think that it's like 
my uh, someone was telling me something crazy that like when McDonald's started offering apples, it almost sounded like hyperbole that like then all of a sudden McDonald's was trading in twenty percent <laughs> of the world's apples right. at that point. So they have impact, right? There, there is impact, and if they if they make these changes in a significant way, in a real way, then there will be positive impact. Is there a way to really, really hold like big corporations accountable? Twitter. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, it might I'm, be I'm half joking, but, but like, also, also kind of yeah. um, in sort of a Trump era where it seems like the government might be a little unwilling to do so as it relates to environmental stuff. Yeah. And there's there's an interesting landscape out there right now with that in holding people accountable is is there so much transparency? There's never been any more more transparency that we have through social media, right. through the Internet, all these great things. But because of that, we've also experienced what I would describe as a hyperinflation of content and that you need far more of it to make a significant impact. You know, like how many crazy breaking news alerts can you get before you're completely desensitized to it? Yeah. Our, our president is being, is probably going to be impeached, is, is looking like that. And it's right. just like, it's just another day in Realityville <laughs> over here in the United right. States when Trump is president. And I've, and seen like, just, yeah. I've seen like three now this videos of, yeah. like, of oil being dumped into a, a bay. Right, you know? right, right. It's so easy to get overwhelmed. And that overwhelming, pro that, that sense of being overwhelmed can lead to inaction and going, well, nothing I can, I can do is going to be of any significance. But that's not very empowering. And right. so much of, of what we've learned is through this and what I've learned personally is it's so much about getting people turned up in their own power and whatever it is and getting people excited uh, to do what they do best. And everyone themselves does have an opportunity to affect people and to affect their small radius of, of concern. And it's just, so there's, uh, this goes to a bigger point that I'm so glad that we're getting to because I really wanted to bring it up is that everything's important. We live in a really interesting time where there's a lot of important decisions to be made that are going to affect a lot of people and a lot of things right now. We also have a glimpse into injustice that has been around for a very long time, but all of a sudden we're just getting it broadcasted to us. And people want to do something about it. So right. it's this, it's this, it's a confluence of all these factors. It's a really interesting time in history where we have all this power, supposedly. You could send a tweet and go viral and, you know, someone's going to get fired or something like that. Right. But how many tweets, out of how many tweets, out of like 10,000 tweets every second, you know, and who has real power and what will actually get picked up and, and not, such as Greta, this, this young woman. Do you want to give a one-sentence overview of who Greta is for people? Greta is, she was a young, I think she's 13 or 15 or 16 woman who sailed to a climate conference because it was the most efficient way, the least amount of greenhouse gas emissions, as sort of a protest demonstration. Right. She sailed from Sweden, like across the Atlantic Ocean. And she picked up a lot of traction and gave a speech at the UN and she's rallying a younger generation, younger than us, is that, that's really pissed off that we've been talking about this for decades. And we've known this has been a big issue for, for, for decades. And no real significant leadership has come in a, from the United States and from big players. And I say the United States because that's who everyone's really looking to for leadership here. And now more and more other players such as Reina, Russia and China and then developing countries too are going to play a big role in this. South Africa, Brazil. Yeah. yeah, and then one thing about Greta is that pre all of that, she was she went 
I think this is actually her second time going viral. Her first time going viral was she was like striking from school in Sweden. Oh yeah. Yeah. She would like sit on the street in front of her school with like a sign. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Yeah. And so that was the, like, that was when she first went viral. Mm -hmm. And then her movement from my understanding, like gained some real traction. Like a lot of kids started skipping school because yeah, now there's mass walkouts because yeah. Cause Sweden wasn't, Sweden wasn't doing enough. Just an, an extra fact about Greta. And so I think that, so we've kind of like, we've talked a lot about like corporations and government and like the movement as a whole. I think that's something that I struggle with personally is like, how do, uh, how does the average person, AKA me, uh, like make responsible choices and like push the movement forward as it relates to climate change. And I think even one step further than that is, is it even on individuals and is that something that is even possible, right? There's so many people who are like, Oh, ethical consumption is just marketed at you to get your money, but it's not actually something that's going to have demonstrable impact. Like I think in DC, the straw thing was a perfect example of that. We were all obsessing over this ban on plastic straws and now all of the bars and the restaurants have to use these paper straws or bamboo straws or whatever. So maybe, so the straw thing is, I think that's good because it's a win, but talk about would make a dent. It, it's such a small piece. Uh, but again, I think that the, the, the larger kind of messaging around it and that it's the culture shifts around being very conscious and being kind of mindful of the plastic consumption and an unnecessary plastic, that may ripple out, butterfly effect, have larger implications. So... Do you think that's the primary value of it is it's really maybe the actual practical implications of it might not be a big deal, but it's really about spreading the awareness. Right. Yeah. And so it's hard to say which way it goes because I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm kind of really dissecting it thinking it could go two ways. And that on one hand you can say, all right, we did it. We, we, we got the straws done time to check out (laughs) you know it's like we got we got it done even though it didn't do anything or it could hopefully empower people and say look at what we did with the straws let's do something bigger let's do something that maybe we can ban plastic bags as a whole right know, maybe that's the next step or yeah but i think that there's this we there things need to come of age when it's time yeah it and for whatever reason it's happening right now even though this is a bit like the summer of love was 50 years ago. The summer of 2019, it's 50th anniversary of of Woodstock and the crazy turmoil that existed in America in the 60s. Um, and you'd think, you know, 50 years out from there, that there'd be incredible progress on environmental issues. And to, on some degree, yes, but I think some people would be really floored by how little has changed in right. 50 years. But we're in a moment now where things are changing very, very rapidly. Yeah. And, and I can speak to that if you want me to, why it's happening. I yeah. Think. I'd love to, I'd, I was going to just make a comment real quick and then we can get into that. And then maybe it's because like in the sixties, it was so tumultuous for so many kinds of people. And you know, it's, it seems like, I don't know, from the out, outsider's perspective, um, it seems like the government can like focus on one big thing at a time. You know, whether it be right. or maybe even like the government and culture can focus on one big thing at a time. In the 60s, it was like civil rights and yeah, um, and maybe the shift right now is heading towards climate change. But yeah, do you want to speak to some the, of the ways that the government are- question is really tough because there's there's a lot of people out there right now who are saying, does the government even work for anyone except for those gigantic multi-billion dollar, trillion dollar corporations? Yeah. And that's a real question. We have to ask ourselves that. 
because if if this powerful country was really acting within our own interests and really thought thoroughly about things that matter to people, we'd have great healthcare, education, infrastructure. Yeah, it would be we, done. Everything would be great. Yeah. Right. But instead, it's Amazon pays no taxes. That's what we get instead. Yeah. Uh, so there's like some real foundational problems to, to to addressing these things. And everyone has the right to be mad. I mean, it's very upsetting. And there's on one hand, we should be grateful and that we live in the best time ever. And we're vaccinated. And the fact that all of us have survived through to adulthood and infant mortality rates have gone way down and we're not going to die of polio and we aren't going to get shot up in the streets due to violence. Like we all live in a great time and a great country. But then there's like the bigger picture of we can do so much better. And at this point, people have been ringing the alarms for so long that that younger generations now, um, people are better off around the world. The rise of sort of the middle class with iPhones, with access to social media, to we're like kind of evolving this this global consciousness. And so like we're in this kind of fit stage where people are outraged by so many things. And mm-hmm. but then again, it's this inflation of that emotion where is this like there's so much bad shit. What could I even do about it? So this thing that you said about human emotion, this actually ties back also to your Al Gore thing, right? So I've been reading this. I was reading this book today and apparently Al Gore came to this guy, Hans Rosling, right? When he, before he came out with Inconvenient Truth and he's like, we really need to get people afraid, right? Of this as an issue, right? Because that that's what's going to motivate people, right? Mm-hmm. And we know from Trump also that fear is a huge motivator, right? Sure. And so basically he had the, these three lines, right? That tracked basically how much CO2 was going to have to go, was going to go into the atmosphere. And he wanted Hans Rosling to just show the worst case scenario. And he had a big ethical issue with that. He's like, I can't ethically show just the worst case scenario if I don't also show the most likely scenario and also the best case scenario. Sure. Right. And Al Gore basically was like, no, we're not doing that. And so he like, they didn't have a partnership in the end. Mm. And I'm really curious what you think of, the alarmist impulse to be like, well, the only way that we can get anyone to do anything is by making them really afraid, right? And like getting people very worked up about it. I mean, it's helpful to do that. Right. And we've seen fear-based marketing essentially work. 2016 election. I think that story might be Al Gore was going for a marketing piece and the statistician had to do his due diligence as like a professional in his field. So I think maybe that's what was at odds there. But when this bigger conversation about what people can do, what people should do, if there is a should do in this whole situation, is is it again comes back down to values. And that's the kind of the foundation for what you should do about climate change and also how to communicate on it. And a lot of what people talk about is the fear based thing doesn't work throwing numbers at people doesn't work, but having a conversation about related values and sitting down and being able to say, we both care about our family. We both care about our future. We both care about holding those in power responsible and starting at these like very, very foundational shared values and building a conversation and consensus from there. And you can get to a really cool place where people agree that it's bad that we're burning coal and that we're trusting 
exports from other countries and you know there's mm -hmm. there's so many good reasons to take care of things that would solve climate change but knowing what to talk about with who starts with understanding who you're talking to and f and building it from the get-go in a value-based conversation i am really curious what your thoughts are around what the point of caring about the environment is i know that's a really basic thing there's this really there's this george carlin skit where he's talking about you know what none of these environmentalists actually give a shit about the environment right like the planet is gonna be fine right, right it's yeah. just the people who are fucked classic right? bit yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so i'm curious whether you agree with that like is it really the end goal for you is to care about the people who are gonna be affected mm. by climate change or is it broader than that this is a huge question in environmentalism because what do we care about? Do we care about the Earth's well-being? Well, then we should probably cut down the number of humans significantly. But humanism is the governing philosophy of the world right now, which is humanity is great, human life is invaluable, and that should be saved and cherished, valued. So through that lens, yes, we are looking at an environmental crisis through the lens of we need to optimize this for human prosperity. And there's trade-offs that we have to make. And a lot of trade-offs are being made at the expense of other organisms and ecosystems for humans. So that George Carlin bit's great because it really hits right to the core, you know? Like, what do you care about? No, you only care about yourself. But that's what life is. We're here and we care about each other and we want people to be well off. There are 300,000 people being born every day around the world. That statistic blew my mind. I knew it was a lot, but just to think about that, and people are dying every day, of course, but the, the birth rate far exceeds the death rate right now. And just kind of wrap your head around that is you think, okay, well, everyone is, is going to want to live like me. So, yeah, we want to be able to sustain what we're doing because wholesale ecological collapse is not <laughs> out of the question. Is it's, it's, You know, we, we are very much grounded in this idea of we live in a very special place, our planet has finite resources and we're, we're still be beginning still even to understand some processes, the natural processes in the natural world and the climate cycle. But some very, very smart people are very, very concerned and have said, this is ex these greenhouse gas problems that we're talking about, this is one thing that we're very, very certain is going to be very bad for people <laughs> going forward. Um, it's going to make life on earth very hectic and very chaotic. Yeah. I think we've seen that shift in narrative, like sort of, I remember uh, watching Captain Planet as a kid and it was like very much focused on like saving the planet, you know? Yeah. And it was, it was focused on not polluting the planet for the purpose of saving the planet. And I mm -hmm. feel like now we, the, the discourse around climate change is like, yo, we are fucked. Like, oh yeah. Like, like, yeah, that's like really our kids are fucked. And I think that that to me at least is more compelling. At the same time, though, the environmentalism movement as we know it today, I think is largely attributed to Rachel Carson, right? And like Silent Spring mm -hmm. talking about DDT and the effect that that had on like the eagle's eggs getting thinner and stuff yeah. like that. But DDT has not killed a single person, mm. right? Yeah. It's mainly people were freaked out because they knew that it was causing this extreme environmental degradation, Right. So if there's a trade off there, right, between, OK, we can either save the polar bears or save, you know, a million people in a third world country or a developing country. 
is that a trade-off that you think is an obvious one? You know, we, along with these, these big questions in, in many fields, it really comes down to these conversations. These conversations are important because I could tell you what I think is important. Yeah. And you could tell me what you think is important. Yeah. And when we get into positions where we have to make decisions, it's, it's that stakeholder engagement piece where people come together, the people that really matter and the people that are going to be affected and say, what matters to you? What do you want? Let's, let's pose this to you. You want the frail eagle eggs or do you want the benefit that the chemical was designed and does actually yeah. produce, right? Like it yeah. does make the crops way more, uh, you know, stronger. We live in a world where the trade-offs are getting less extreme. And and I am a techno-optimist in that I really believe that the future, the technology will continue to make things better. Life so I've got actually people. this new theory after I've been reading Noah Uval Harari, who wrote Sapiens. Ow. Isabel's <laughs> very excited. I wish everyone on the podcast could see those eyes. Jesus. You, like, wow. That is my favorite goddamn book. Okay, sorry. Mm. Keep going. So it's so he talks a lot about AI in his in his follow up book to Sapiens Homo Deus, and I'm I'm reading another great book right now called Zero to One by Peter Thiel who founded PayPal, and, and Palantir. Yeah, and so this idea that um, that AI is coming and it's going to revolutionize everything, and so I kind of have this new hope that just as we're very quickly approaching some sort of manifestation of all this in a singularity right? A techno technological singularity podcast episode for down the line. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> it like, I just think that eventually computers can be so smart. And like when that happens and computers are so capable of processing quintillion gigabits of trillion bits of information and all then one we time. put them in our brains. Right. But and then, then we can do that. Those algorithms are going to be able to say, given the playing field and what we need to do, these are the best decisions to be made going forward. And all that decision-making capacity will be relegated to programs or computers. And the big solving of crunching all the data will, will no longer fall on people's shoulders, but we're going to be able to have really, really good answers to really difficult questions through uh, partnership with computers and big data and big processing and artificial intelligence. So I have hope in that, that things are getting really crazy, but we're also kind of like, you know, we, uh, Elon Musk says we're already cyborgs, right? Because we're carrying around the supercomputer and the, the next step is just integrating it into our biology. Uh, we're, we're moving so fast through all of this. In 2006, there was not a single smartphone. Yeah. In 2006, yeah. when I was in 11th grade. <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> and now, the, now you know, it's, it's, it's critical. You'd be dumb not to have one. Right. Um, so it's, it's, just a, it's just everything's evolving so crazy. And I, and I do have this kind of new maybe pet hope that all of this worry will be for naught. And eventually like in the, the, the like the converse of the Terminator, we're just going to have benevolent technology. Just like, Hey, we figured this shit out for you guys. And like, we've already gotten to work on the carbon scrubbers. It's going to suck all the carbon out of the atmosphere, but we're not going to suck too much out. Don't we worry. And we're going to put that in a safe space and we're going to like build our cities and build our modes of transportation way mm -hmm. more sustainably. And no one's going to get hurt. Like I just, I do have this kind of like, uh, oh, we'll figure it out. Yeah, techno utopia. I do want to re revisit the like what can because I think we started talking about whether or not you know the onus is on a person versus a corporation or the government to act on climate change. And yeah, I w I'm really interested in getting your take on like sort of tangible steps for the average person to take on yeah. climate change. 
there's two things to consider in going back to what I said about thinking globally, acting locally. Right. That's important. Keep bigger picture things in mind. And when you decide to ride your bike to work rather than take the bus, you don't stop that bus from taking its route. Or when you decide to not take a flight, that plane is still going to fly. But you are adding your momentum. You're adding your karma, if you would. Right. To, and you're putting to, your dollar towards something. Yeah, towards towards another, towards an alternative that, that needs momentum. Mm-hmm. And you don't know who you're going to inspire and you don't know what sort of change that you're going to experience within yourself mm-hmm. as you make these decisions. But then also keeping an eye towards what really is a powerful leverage point, whether it be advocating for a certain candidate or taking part in signing a petition for a specific business or leveraging what it is that you specifically bring to the table, whether it be a podcast or a big Instagram following. Like there's this, this person I know and she said that she's struggling to make an impact on the environment and climate change. And she has 3,500 folks that follow her on Instagram. I was thinking that's a great platform. You have more, you have three times as many followers as I do. Start there. Use that, use that thing, whatever it is. And to find out what, your power is, and that's what's really great about green drinks to bring it full circle, is I am not necessarily directly affecting policy or putting up solar panels every single time we have these events, but the magic that I can bring to the table are creating space for people, and I'm, I'm just, I seem to be really good at bringing folks together and creating community, so I, I can feel satisfied in my own leadership in the space in that I'm providing that service for people and that I'm taking my, my talents however much you can consider that a talent yeah. in, in providing that as an opportunity for people. Yeah. People have to come and take it. Yeah. But it, for me, it has allowed me to say, I am putting in the effort in a way that makes me feel fulfilled. I'm, I don't feel obligated that like, maybe am I maybe only doing 10% of what I'm capable of doing in the space and like actually making an impact? Maybe. But there's the balance of saving and savoring the world, which is a really interesting kind of balance. And the reason that environmentalists give a shit about saving the world is because they savor it. And what are you going to do? Run around and be concerned all the time. You're going to be alarmed all the time <laughs> in every moment. Probably right. not, but it's important to have those values in place first off. And then, but also enjoy your fucking life. Thank you so much, Spencer, for coming on the show. This was a really enlightening conversation for me. Uh, You have a lot of good facts in your back pocket. (laughs) It's the kind of thing that I definitely know about. And it's also like something that you, you always know that maybe you should be doing more. And it's like hard to find that balance. And it seems like your group is really good at creating that mentality that it is not this all-consuming issue. Um, if you liked what you heard in this podcast, please go to greendrinksdc.org and sign up for our emails. Check us out on Instagram and Facebook and come check out one of our free events all over DC twice a month, every month. Check us out, guys. We're excited to meet you. Okay, cool. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Please rate us five stars on Apple Podcasts. Yay! Five stars. Five stars. Bye! Five stars.